And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here on exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's February the 2nd, 33rd day of the year. 332 days remain to the end of the year. When we get to do it all over again. Well, it's National Crepe Day, <coughs> and that's the uh, thin, delicious French pastry. Or we'll play your ukulele day, National River Day, National Bubblegum Day, Number Day, National Catcher's Day, Two Effa Day, um... Well, the cyber world has brought us uh, a lot of advantages, and but 2F, A, uh, fortifies your digital defenses, ensuring your online interactions remain safeguarded and private. Never can tell who's going to be eavesdropping. Candlemas Day. National Hedgehog Day. National Working Naked Day. If you work in an office, I really don't recommend it. Though there are a few that uh, I would certainly have favored. Groundhog Day. Let's not forget Poxitani Phil, who predicts the future. National Wear Red Day. National Give Kids a Smile Day, National Sled Dog Day, Marmot Day, National Tater Tot Day, Lung Leaving Day, World Wetlands Day, National Brown Dog Day, Women's Heart Week, Solo Diners Eat Out Week, <coughs> National Patient Recognition Week, and African Heritage and Health Week. Uh, birthdays, and we got Shakira, Farrah Fawcett, Christy Brinkley, Anne Rand. Wrote a hell of a book, let me tell you. National Black History Month, Canned Food Month, National Sack Food Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, Harley Quinn Month, National Embroidery Month, National Grapefruit Month, National Women Inventors Month, Great American Pie Month, International Vegan Cuisine Month, American Heart Month, National Cherry Month, National Bake for Family Fun Month. Though don't bake a member of the family, that logical mistake. National Bird Feeding Month, National Hot <coughs> Breakfast Month, National Library Lovers Month, Low Vision Awareness Month, National Fasting February, and North American Inclusion Month. Uh, let's. Now that having been said, in 506 A.D., Alaric II, eighth king of the Visigoths, promulgates the Brevari of Alaric, a collection of what he called Roman law. 880, Battle of Lundberg, Heath, King Louis III of France is defeated by the Norse great heathen army at Lundberg Heath in Saxony. 
962, Translato Imperi. Pope John XII crowns Otto I, Holy Roman Emperor, the first Holy Roman Emperor in nearly 40 years. 1032, Conrad II, Holy Roman Emperor, becomes King of Burgundy. 1141, the Battle of Lincoln, in which Stephen, King of England, is defeated and captured by the allies of Empress Matilda. 1207, Terra Mariana, eventually comprising present-day Latvia and Estonia, is established. 1428, an intense earthquake struck the Principality of Catalonia with the epicenter near Camprodon. Widespread destruction and heavy casualties were reported. 1438, nine leaders of the Transylvanian Peasant Revolt are executed at Torda. 1461, Wars that Arose's, the Battle of Mortimer's Cross results in the death of Owen Tudor. 1536, Spaniard Pedro de Mendoza founds Buenos Aires in Argentina. 1645, Scotland Wars of the Three Kingdoms, Battle of Inverlochy. 1653, New Amsterdam, later renamed to New York City, is uh, incorporated. 1709, Alexander Selkirk is rescued after being shipwrecked on a desert island. This inspired Daniel Defoe's adventure book, Robinson Crusoe, and his man Friday. 1814, the last of the River Thames frost fairs comes to an end. The... uh, they were held on the tideway of the River Thames in some winters, starting at least as early as the late 7th century until the early 19th century. Most are held between the early 17th and early 19th centuries during the period known as the Little Ice Age when the river froze over most frequently. Uh, during that period of time, the British winter was more severe than it is now, and the river was wider and slower, further impeded by the 19 piers that are Medieval Old London Bridge, which were removed in 1831. 1848, Mexican American War. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is signed. 1850, Brigham Young declares war on Tempanogos in the battle at Fort Utah. Uh, the Tempanogos are or also known as the Utah Indians, or a tribe of Native Americans who inhabited a large part of central Utah, in particular that area from Utah Lake East to the uh, Inta Mountains and south into present-day San Pete uh, County. They're not enrolled in the Ute Indian tribe of the Untai or the Ure Reservation. Most of them live in the Untai Valley Reservation. 1868, pro-imperial forces capture Osaka Castle from the Takagawa Shogunate and burn it to the ground. 1870, The Seven Brothers, a novel by Finnish author Alexis Kivi, is published first time in several thin booklets. 1876, The National League of Professional Baseball Clubs of Major League Baseball is formed. 1881, the sentences of the trial of the Warlocks of Chiloe are imparted. 1887, the Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, the first Groundhog Day is observed. 
1899, the Australian Premier's Conference held in Melbourne decides to locate Australia's capital city, Canberra, between Sydney and Melbourne. 1900, Boston, Detroit, Milwaukee, Baltimore, Chicago, and St. Louis agree to form baseball's American League. On this date in 1901, saw the funeral of Queen Victoria. 1909, the Paris Film Congress opens up, an attempt by European producers to form an equivalent to the MPCC cartel in the U.S. 1913, Grand Central Terminal opens in New York City. If you've never been there, I recommend going. It is a fascinating place. Uh, my first time in there, I was just overwhelmed. Uh, 1920, the Tartu Peace Treaty signed between Estonia and Russia. 1922, Ulysses by James Joyce is published. Also in 1922, the uprising called the Port Mutiny starts in the region between uh, Kuala Halahavi and Sabokovsky in uh, Finland. In 1925, Serum under Nome. Dog sleds reach Nome, Alaska with diphtheria serum inspiring the Iditarod race. 1934, the Export-Import Bank of the U.S. is incorporated. 1935, Leonard Keeler administers polygraph tests to two murder suspects, the first time polygraph evidence is admitted in U.S. courts. 1942, the Oswald Group is responsible for the first active event of anti-Nazi resistance in Norway to protest the inauguration of Vidkun Quisling. The uh, Oswald Group was a Norwegian organization. It was the most active World War II resistance group in Norway from 1941 to December of 1944. Had about 200 members. It committed at least 110 acts of sabotage against Nazi occupying forces and collaborationist government of Vidkun Quisling. You're probably best known for conducting the first act of resistance against the German occupation of Norway. It detonated a bomb at Oslo East Station in protest against Quisley's inauguration as minister-president. It was originally the Norwegian branch of the Organization Against Fascism in support of the USSR batter known as the Wobbleberg League and a fascist group founded in 1936 by German communist uh, Ernst Wobbleberg support and direction of the Soviet secret police, the NKDV. Nineteen forty three, World War II. Battle of Stalingrad comes from the end when Soviet troops accept to surrender the last organized German troops in the city. Nineteen fifty four, the Detroit Red Wings played in the first outdoor hockey game by any NHL team in an exhibition against their Marquette Branch Prison Pirates in Marquette, Michigan. 1959, nine experienced ski hikers in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union died in mysterious circumstances. 1966, Pakistan suggests a six-point agenda with Kashmir and the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. 1971, Idi Amin replaces President Milton Obote as leader of Uganda. Also in 1971, International Ramsar Convention for the Conservation and Sustainable Utilization of Wetlands is signed in Ramsar, Mazandaran, Iran. 1980, reports surfaced that the FBI is targeting allegedly corrupt congressmen in the Abscam operation. 1982, the Hama Massacre. Government of Syria attacks the town of Hama. 
1988-7, after the 1986 People Power Revolution, the Philippines enacts a new constitution. 1989, Soviet-Afghan War, last Soviet armored column leaves Kabul. 1990, apartheid, F.W. de Klerk announces the unbanning of the African National Congress and promises to release Nelson Mandela. 1998, Cebu Pacific Flight 387 crashes into Mount Simagaya in the Philippines, killing all 104 people on board. 2000, the first digital cinema projection in Europe took place in Paris, realized by Philippe Benat with the DLP cinema technology developed by Texas Instruments. 2004, Swiss tennis player Roger Federer becomes the number one ranked men's singles player, position he hold for a record 237 weeks. 2005, Government of Canada introduces the Civil Marriage Act. This legislation will become law on July 20, 2005, legalizing same-sex marriage. 2007, police officer Filippo Rossiti is killed when a clash breaks out in the Sicily Derby between Catania and Palermo in the Serie A, the top flight of Italian football. This event led to major changes in stadium regulations in Italy. I wasn't able to find flight of Italian football in your Apple Music library. Search on Apple Music. Uh, 2012, the ferry MV Rabu Queen sinks off the coast of Papua New Guinea near Finchlafen district. There was estimated 146 to 165 dead. And in 2021... Burmese military establishes a state administration council, a military junta, after deposing the democratically elected government in the 2021 Myanmar coup d'etat. <coughs> well, that took care of all the interesting historical facts. You know, there have been a lot of um, stories about strange creatures and and there have been rumors and legends that uh, the government knows a whole lot more about these creatures than they're letting on. So we're going to talk about some of these uh, uh, what are referred to as monster files today. Now, if you want more detailed information and I'm going to give you, Nick Redfern, who I had the opportunity to, to meet, <coughs> I came out with a very interesting book called Monster Files. So I recommend you uh, check it out. It's available online. You know, it's interesting to note that even presidents have an interest in uh, monsters. Take Teddy Roosevelt, who was president from 1901 to 1909. He was the youngest person who ever held the position of president. Even though they say John Kennedy was, uh, Roosevelt was only 42 when he came into office. But um, he had been before and after his time in office, very avid hunter. And he came upon a story that um, 
he became the recipient of an early and quite graphic account of a violent encounter with a Bigfoot. Now, frontiersmen are hardly the sort of people that uh, believe in fairy tales, tales of the paranormal or unexplained uh, events. They are hard-headed, hard-nosed individuals more focused on day-to-day activities uh, of living and uh, trying to survive. But there are exceptions to every rule. And one of these peculiar stories came to the attention of President Roosevelt. It was told by a man named Bauman. He had been an uh, outdoorsman all his life. Spent the entire, uh, his entire life living and hunting in uh, the American uh, West. And he possessed a very thorough knowledge of all sorts of tales of spectral entities and creatures of the most evil nature that uh, was said to haunt the, the forest and woodlands. Now, because of his background and reputation, when Bowman told this story, President Roosevelt listened carefully. And he listened for good reason. He was also an avid sportsman and a very um, keen hunter. In fact, after he left office. He went off to the Africa, took part in a massive hunt that saw between eleven and 12,000 animals uh, slaughtered or captured by Roosevelt and his colleagues. So certainly Bauman's tale definitely got his attention. Now back in the mid-1800s, Bauman and a friend spent time camping in the heart of the Bitterroot Range. Uh, that's a range of uh, in the Rocky Mountains, it runs for more than 3,000 miles from British Columbia to New Mexico. I've been in some of it. It's rough territory. It was in this particular range of uh, mounds of something uh, murderous and savage roamed. Now, at the time the incident took place, Bauman was a young man, was hunting with a friend, and they went out to this wild mountainous area of the, of the range where there would be uh, not a lot of competition, but a lot of uh, game. Now, they didn't have much success initially catching anything of significance. So they decided to head into a more desolate and seldom traveled area. It was a pass through which ran a small stream. It was a home of a sizable colony of beavers. And, of course, beaver pelts um, brought in quite a lot of uh, interest from buyers. Interestingly, that pass uh, had developed a reputation as a place of negativity, I guess is the best word for it. And the reason was very simple. About a year before Bauman's um, journey... A woodsman was ripped to shreds and partially eaten by an unknown predator. 
His remains were found by a group of prospectors who were heading for the gold fields. But all they found, unfortunately, was violent death and tragedy. Now, Bowman and his friend, and I never could find the friend's name, were both experienced men in the woods, both well-armed. And they weren't uh, at all uh, put off by this uh, story of mysterious death. In fact, far from it. They packed all the provisions they'd need for a, to spend a significant time period uh, out in the yonder. When they reached the pass, they headed still further up into the mountains with a pair of pack animals as their only traveling companions. When the ground made going too tough for the animals, Bowman and his friend uh, left them uh, hobbled in a stretch of meadow and continued on on foot, now completely alone. Well, they walked for about four hours, onward and upward through the forest, finally reached a small glade where they chose to make camp for the night. And the primary reason they made camp was there was evidence of plenty of game in the area. So they spent the first couple of hours there building a shelter, and then they headed upstream to catch a few salmon for a much-needed hearty supper. Everything was fine until they got back to camp. When things took a decidedly alarming turn, the camp was in a state of chaotic disarray. Looked like some crazed animal or individual had found the camp and virtually destroyed it. The lean-to they had built was mangled. Backpacks had been torn open, contents rifled, food was gone. And there were huge paw prints all around the area. Now, these two mountain men assumed they were bear prints. Not an uncommon sight in that part of the world. So they rebuilt and settled down for the evening. And as night progressed, and of course they kept scanning the area with some trepidation, uh, afraid the, the bear might come back. But it became clear that the bear theory wasn't quite as sound as it had seemed earlier. After carefully examining the tracks, Bowman's companion noted with some astonishment that the creature, whatever it might have been, had been walking on two legs. Well, totally baffled, the two studied the prints for a while longer, but all they could conclude was that they showed distinct paws or feet, but it was clear they didn't weren't made by a bear. The only reason they knew that is, although the tracks did seem to display evidence of claws, it would certainly would have implied a bear was the culprit. Bears only ambulated their hind legs for very short periods of time. And this particular creature appeared to be using his hind legs for mo uh, locomotion exclusively. And it was, they just, it was getting dark and there was nothing more they could do that evening aside of getting a night's sleep, which they did. Well, right around midnight, Bowman was woken up by something. And although the, it was pitch black around him, his nose immediately told him there was an unclean beast lurking nearby. The stench was strong and absolutely gut-wrenching, as it was undeniable and immediate. But that was nothing compared to what happened next. 
Bowman described how a massive animal-like form suddenly and briefly loomed into view. Well, Bowman had the firm presence of mind to quickly fire his rifle at whatever he had seen, and the creature took off like a shot. Unfortunately, the darkness prevented Bowman from getting a good look at whatever that creature was. And not surprisingly, very little further slumber could be had that night, and the two wildly chose to get the campfire going again. They hoped uh, the fire would keep the beast from returning and causing even more mayhem. Fortunately, nothing else of an alarming nature occurred that night, and the next morning the two hunters headed off to check on some traps they had set the day before. Well, they were pleased with the plentiful bounty they found and went back to their camp with several unlucky animals destined to become their tasty evening meal. But once again, their camp had been wrecked. The newly reconstructed shelter was destroyed. Their makeshift beds were in violent disarray, but tossed around the glade. And all through the camp area, there was huge bipedal footprints. Unfortunately for Bowman and his friend, uh, whatever made those prints was quick to come back. Although the darkness was had fallen, the cumbersome yet quick movements of this Heavy animal on the floor of the forest could be heard all around the camp. <coughs> it did an unsettlingly weird, drawn-out howl or moan that absolutely set their hair on end. Thankfully, the fire kept the beast at bay. Now, Bowman may have been an experienced man of the forest, but by now, he'd had just about enough, so did his friend. Um... Bowman admitted and when told the story that uh, whatever this creature was had gotten the better of him. They decided the wisest course of action was to get the hell out of there. Well, they did so in complete darkness. Would not have, uh, which, quite frankly, wasn't the greatest idea. And after reviewing the area around them and how absolutely pitch black it was, they decided to keep the fire going steadily through the night, which would hopefully keep the creature from coming any closer. And, and then, the moment daylight broke, they'd head back down. Well, it should have been a simple operation, but it was anything but. Well, when the sun began to raise the next morning, the two decided it was a case of now or never and started out. Ominously, whatever had been watching the camp and was shadowing them. It could be heard quite clearly, but it was also equally clear it didn't want to be seen. The telltale constant snapping of branches and rustling among the trees made it clear that thing was expertly following their every move. This continued for the greater part of the day. And as much as they wanted to beat a hasty retreat, uh... There was one thing that they needed to take care of. They had to have food. Well, the previous day, they had laid three beaver traps in a small pond situated in a large ravine. And if the traps had worked, that meant another good supply of food for the return trip. And in the, these dense forests, far away from home and civilization, food was a vital necessity. So Bowman decided to go and check the traps. Well, clearly, that move saved his life. His friend had the job of setting up their next camp, but unfortunately, there was no way that um, they could get back down the mountain before darkness fell. So, for that reason, they had to stop and make camp. And sure enough, the traps had done their job, and Bowman was satisfied, and 
Went back to camp. When he got there, it was utterly and definitely silent. He couldn't hear a bird, animal, no wind, no noise. Even his own shoes made no sound as they crunched on fallen twigs and leaves. This was not a good sign. He approached and called out to his friend, didn't get an answer. Now that was also disturbing. Well, with concern, he could see the campfire had all but gone out. The only thing that remained was its uh, little smoke swirling up within the thick forest canopy. Well, seriously worried now, he called out to his friend once more. No reply. Well, as he explored the camp, he suddenly realized why nobody answered his calls. Stretched out next to that huge trunk of a once-fallen spruce was what remained of the body of his hunting partner. Raced over to his friend to try to help, but it was clear it was too late. His neck had been broken, and there were savage bite marks all over his bloodied and pummeled neck. And all around, there were more of those strange, huge bipedal tracks. Looking at the scene in a state of shock, it was all too clear what had happened. His friend had evidently been sitting on the fallen tree, warming his hands over the fire that he had built right in front of it. When that unknown behind and tore into him with uh, almost demonic force. And what was worse, the broken body appeared as though the gigantic animal had rolled over it time and time again, apparently in some nightmarish form of obscene, maniacal glee. Well, Bowman by this time was in a state of sheer panic and knew the only option he had was to get out of there. So he abandoned everything, possessions, provisions, kept his rifle, and ran for his life. And it was a long, torturous trek back to civilization during which uh, he came to believe the creature was less flesh and blood, more diabolic or demonic. Bowman, uh, Bowman finally reached the pass where he and his friend had left the ponies, and to his relief, the animals were still there, happily grazing away. Well, this was a uh, undeniably fascinating and controversial story that... Uh, Involved nothing less than a U.S. president being informed of the startling facts pertaining to an early documented encounter with a violent homicidal Bigfoot. An encounter that ended in the inhumane, bloody slaughter of a real person. Now, this wasn't the only occasion in which senior figures in American officialdom and the hairy giant man beast of the woods have crossed paths. And for those reasons alone, the story of President Roosevelt and his friend Bowman is an illustrative uh, and appropriate place to begin our journey into, shall we say, weird waters. Well, our next story comes from England. You know, who would ever have believed that... Uh, Stories about gigantic monsters of the deep could be found in the filing cabinets of a government facility in southwest London. It's the National Archives, <coughs> which houses uh, millions of pages of uh, classified files from MI6, MI5, the British Army, Air Force, and Royal Navy. And it's the Navy files that we're going to delve into for this particular story. 
the British government's sea serpent file. Now, the file in question begins with a confrontation that occurred May 9, 1830. On the one side was the crew of the Rob Roy, a British Royal Navy ship on its way home after extensive voyage across the perilous waters of the Atlantic Ocean. And on the other side was a gargantuan sea monster. As the ship passed the island of St. Helena, um, something bizarre happened, according to the Rob Roy's captain, James Stockdale. It's recorded in the ship's log. Um, he said about 5 p.m. all at once when I was walking on the poop, probably meant the poop deck, my attention was drawn to the water on the port bow by scuffling noise. Like all the watch on deck were drawn to it, uh, judge my amazement when what should stare us in the face, as if not knowing whether to come over the deck or go around the stern, was a great big sea snake. Now, I've heard of that fellow before, and I've killed snakes 24 feet long in the Straits of Malacca, but they'd go in his mouth. I think he must have been asleep because we were moving along at two knots an hour and he seemed as much alarmed as we were and all were taken back for about 15 seconds but he soon was underway and when fairly off his head was square with our topsail and his tail was square with the foremast well that's one big snake now I've seen snakes in the jungle 20 25 feet long in fact we ran over one with an APC and just aggravated him didn't kill him he was so long he stretched all the way across the road we were going down his head was in the bushes on one side and his tail was on the other well captain stockdale made a observation that uh, graphically demonstrated the sheer astonishing size of this mighty creature that loomed large from the waves one that could very likely have had godzilla himself quaking in his boots. He said, My ship is 171 feet long, and the foremast is 42 feet from the stern, which would make the monster about 129 feet long. And if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it, but there's no mistake or doubt of its length. Because it was so close, I could even smell this nasty, fishy smell. When underway, he carried his head about six feet out of the water, with a fin between the shoulders about two feet long. I think he was swimming about five miles an hour because I watched him from the topsail yard till I lost sight of him in about 50 minutes. Well, quite possibly, still in a state of shock and all, when he wrote his official report, uh, he signed off in a memorable fashion. He said, I hope never to see him more. It's enough to frighten a strong at heart. Well, if I saw a 129-foot-long snake, I probably would be upset, too. There's a second 19th-century report of a sea serpent sighting. It's been classified at an official level by the British government. Took place December 13, 1857. Also occurred in the vicinity of the island of St. Helena. And it's no less amazing than what happened to Rob Roy. The statement was prepared by Commander George Henry Harrington. Revealed the facts to a concerned and worried British Admiralty. Now, <coughs> while myself and officers were standing on the lee side of the poop, looking toward the island, we were startled by the sight of a huge marine animal that 
reared its head out of the water about 20 yards from the ship. When it suddenly disappeared for about half a minute and made a reappearance in the same manner again, showing us its neck and head about 10 or 20 feet out of the water, head was shaped like a long buoy. And I should suppose the diameter had been 7 or 8 feet in the largest part with a kind of scroll of roof encircling about 2 feet from the top. Water was discolored for several hundred feet from the head, so much so that on its first appearance my impression was the ship was in broken waters produced, as I suppose, by some volcanic agency since I passed the island before. Captain Harrington had far more to, to say. All his statements suggested the presence in the waters of a beast whose uh, incredible size would put even an average-sized New York high-rise to shame. But the second appearance completely dispelled those fears and assured us it was a monster of extraordinary length and appeared to be moving slowly toward the land. Now, the ship was going too fast to enable us to reach the masthead in time to form a correct estimate of its extreme length. But from what we saw from the deck, we concluded it must have been over 200 feet long. The boatswain and several of the crew who reserved it from the forecastle stated it was more than double the length of the ship, in which case it must have been uh, 500 feet. Now that's one heck of a monster. I don't care what you're talking about. Well, in the conclusion to his report, the captain said, I'm convinced that it belonged to the Serpent Tribe. And there seemed to be very little doubt about that at all. Maybe equally intriguing, but not only was the British Admiralty carefully securing and studying reports of sea serpents taken from its own sailors, but it was regularly scrutinizing both British and overseas newspapers for those accounts as well. While the precise reason for such an activity is still unknown, maybe it was lost in an inevitable fog of time or still considered a classified matter by the powers that be, has to be said that for the Admiral to engage in such painstaking research is evidence that its interest in the phenomena is far from cursory. There's one prime example of more than two dozen news clips in the file, an article titled The Great Sea Serpent Again, been extracted from a newspaper whose name the Admiralty Archives did not identify, but it stated, all doubts may be set to rest about the Great Sea Serpent. On May 6, 1863, the African Royal Mail steamer Athenian, on her passage from Tenerife to Bathurst, fell in with one. According to the article, one John Chapel, the ship's quartermaster, was the first to see the, this creature and described it as being around uh, 100 feet long, dark brown with its tail projecting up out of the water. Interestingly, the animal was described by Chapel as having a, atop its head something like a mane, a Notable feature has been reported for centuries in numerous sea serpent encounters all across the globe. Matter remained and still remains a mystery. Carefully filed and preserved by Admiralty staff, tasked with that uh, studying all matters beastly, according to its National Archives file, HO 199-480. Well, now that we've had a look at some sea serpents, ships, and sailors of Britain's Admiralty, it's time to head off to Russia a series of experiments designed to meld men and ape into uh, one infernal form. Well, in late 2005, a story reminiscent of the movie Planet of the Apes surfaced in the pages of a Scotland, United Kingdom newspaper called The Scotsman. This controversial feature in question described how formerly classified official documentation, which had Reportedly had been brought to the attention of the newspaper staff, told of a shocking and secret history that uh, easily rivaled, if not eclipsing, the 
wildest of all science fiction sagas possible. It's a strange and bizarre tale of how in the 1920s, under the ruthless rule of the infamous Joseph Stalin, the Soviets planned to create an unstoppable army of terrible, powerful monsters that could be unleashed upon the battlefield against Russia's foes. This was a fighting force of nothing less than eight men, creatures with the physical strength of fully grown gorillas and killing strength of tain, uh, trained soldiers. Any brain power behind an inexorable instinct to slaughter the enemy in mass was for obvious reasons something Stalin desired to keep to an absolute minimum. It was a program as ambitious as it was abominable. Placed it in the hands of a man named Ilya Ivanov, a brilliant Russian physiologist with a flair for thinking, uh, forward thinking in the worlds of cutting-edge science and zoology. As for the sensational story that appeared in the Scotsman, it was uh, soon disseminated around the globe. Picked up by such respected publications as The New Scientist, Scientific American, and The New York Times. Even became the subject of an episode of the History Channel's hugely popular cryptozoology-themed uh, series, The Monster Quest. But the question becomes, was there any truth to the tale of Stalin's mutant ape army? As the uh, UK's uh, tabloid newspaper, The Sun, dubbed it in eye-catching, sensational fashion. Well, when you start down to that quest, things become a little foggy, so to speak. <clears throat> now, that Ilya Ivanov would have been the ideal person I had on board for just such a program is not a matter for doubt for one specific reason. Rather remarkably, Ivanov did indeed embark upon a controversial project to try to fuse ape and human into one foul creation. But of critical importance is the matter of whether or not this was just a result of his own peculiar and brand of controversial research or if it was really at the orders of Joseph Stalin and the Soviet government, as a means to get the alleged official secret project off the ground and create the most fearsome and powerful army the world's ever seen. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, Ivanov established the very first center designed to cater to in-depth research in the field of artificial insemination and resources. Reasoning was obvious, to continue refining the bloodline until the Ultimate horse in terms of speed, agility, and muscle power was perfected. He also attempted to breed horses with zebras, although without even a modicum of success. Nevertheless, he was an undeniably brilliant scientist, and that meant a great deal to the Soviets, to the point where the Soviet Union's Academy of Science elected to fund his unique brand of work. His funding to the tune of about $200,000 in today's economy to permit Ivanov to work on a plan to, to determine if ape-human hybrids could be brought to fruition if the entire matter is beyond both science and the laws of nature. We now know humans and champions have a DNA sequence that's 95% identical, and a coding DNA sequence is it matched to a figure of 95%. Therefore, maybe we can never be fully certain that all attempts to splice man and ape were destined to end in failure. I've known a few folks that had no doubt in my mind they were part ape, Avenal's first major port of call was French West Africa, more specifically a research facility of the Paris-France-based Pasteur Institute in Kindia, French Guinea. French Guinea. We arranged for the capture of a number of female chimpanzees, all of which were impregnated with sperm donated by human males. 
Former controversial, he elected to go down an avenue of truly dark proportions, which ranged for a number of local tribeswomen to be impregnated with sperm extracted from male chimpanzees. Now, utter failure was the only result, which, with the benefit of hindsight, is probably a good thing for everybody concerned, particularly those tribeswomen who were hardly women uh, willing participants in this affair. For being dissuaded by the lack of success, uh, Ivanov then decided to use gorillas instead of chimps in his madcap scheme. Didn't have any luck there either, so having achieved nothing of any significance in West Africa, he returned to his native Russia. But he still wasn't done with his plans to combine ape and man as one. In fact, he's far from it. Laboratories not unlike the one established in North Africa are quickly built in several locations, including Georgia, the birthplace of Joseph Stalin. These later experiments from 1928 to 1929 focused on attempts to make apes pregnant with human sperm and human females with ape sperm just as was the case in West Africa. Once again, it was, a, as far as history knows, a complete failure. The project was finally abandoned once the Soviet Academy of Science got the message that it simply wasn't going to work. As for Ivanov, well, he was now persona non grata in his own homeland. When you fail to carry out the wishes of the powers that be, they don't have any use for you. On New Year's Eve 1930, he was arrested and sentenced to five years in jail which was shortly commuted to five years of exile in Amati, the former capital of Kazakhstan, where he died in 1932. But existence of the, bizarre, the evidence of the bizarre project remained in existence for decades. A short time ago, a group of workmen building a play area for children in the Georgian Black Sea town of Sukumi came across a crumbling old underground lab where some of the diabolical experimentation had been undertaken all those years ago. And what was the proof? The large number of ape skeletons scattered across the old stone floors of Ivanov's lab. <coughs> now, as we've seen, there's no doubt Ilya Ivanov was putting forth a Herculean effort researching the feasibility of creating human ape hybrids. History has demonstrated that's the case. And there's also no doubt that the funding for this program, both in Russia and French West Africa, came directly from the highest echelons of the Soviet Academy of Science. But the question is, did Joseph Stalin have anything to do with it? As the story in the Scotsman suggested, was he really the brains behind the entire uh, project? If that was the case, was his goal actually to have uh, under his iron-fisted, ruthless command an army of man-beasts that could pave the way for eventual Soviet domination of the entire planet? Well, to answer that question, we have a big problem. Persistent and careful digging by the media has failed to find any evidence from any source supporting even hinting at Stalin's connection to the affair. Eric Michael Johnson, who holds a master's degree in evolutionary anthropology, focused on the grade 8 behavioral ecology, and he dug deeply into this particularly controversial matter. Notice there's not a single shred of data to support the assertion that Stalin ever made such statements regarding an army of eight men to anybody. Of course, as we have seen from CNN and the New York Times, the mere fact it's not true doesn't keep it from being a great news story. Also, nowhere in any existing papers, files, documents, notebooks, or diaries are there any references to Stalin, either playing a role or even having knowledge of this um, project. And as those who believe that Stalin knew or even orchestrated the affair assert, that same paperwork does demonstrate the operation gained at least some support from certain elements within the Bolshevik government.
And while there may seem to be a triumph for those who think Stalin masterminded it, um, it's really not. The available papers make it abundantly clear the Bolsheviks were enthusiastically pushing Ivanov's work for one reason. His research into the potential similarities between humans and apes strongly supported the theories of Darwinism and evolution. For that reason, in the collective mind of the Bolshevik government, Ivanov was somebody who's theorizing would hopefully help to obliterate religious beliefs and eradicate related theories concerning the origins of the human race. That was one of the chief goals for the religion-heading Bolsheviks. Creating an army of ape men wasn't even in the cards for them. Now, there have long been claims that uh, you were half-human and half-ape creatures running around. Um, <coughs> however, there's not been any definitive proof. Now, this is a story that has some truth to it. And it does describe very real attempts to create human-ape hybrids. And they were undertaken by the Soviet Union scientific elite. And they were funded by the Soviet Academy of Science. And the Soviet Academy of Science did have the support of the Bolshevik government. Well, but according to uh, several writers I've come across in researching this, um, the Scotsman's yarn about the, the ape army was merely another along the line of cases where a journalist fills a slow news day with a sensationalized story. However, additional claims having nothing to do with Ily Ivanov or Joseph Solomon made to the effect that the Human ape entities were created and lived and thrived, in one case, right into the 21st century. To demonstrate that point, let's talk about um, Julia Pastrana. Born in Mexico in 1834, a woman afflicted by what is termed congenital generalized hypertrichosis, or the Wolfman Syndrome, in extreme cases, this condition causes bizarre behavior and radical mood swings, as well as excessive hair growth on the face and body of the victim. People with this condition typically display a normal facial appearance and skull structure beneath all the hair, but Julia Pastrana was noticeably and gruesomely different. Most unfortunately, and similar to people with uh, physical deformities um, of yesteryear, Forced to earn a meager living in so-called circus freak shows where she sensationally advertised as being half human and half ape. However, her appearance gained her far more notoriety than many others with uh, hypertrichosis who simply suffered from an overabundance of facial and body hair. She had a double rows of teeth set within powerful protruding jaws that resembled those of an ape or a gorilla. In fact, she looked down like savage and animalistic. Even the renowned Charles Darwin likened her appearance to that of a gorilla. And in fact, while on display at a Moscow-Russia circus in 1860s, she gave birth to a daughter who looked equally as savage, and that only inflamed the rumors that her possible non-human origins even further. Sadly, shortly after this, both mother and baby died. Matter whether she was simply a woman suffering from an extraordinary rare medical condition or something far stranger continues to this day. And then there's the case of Oliver, a chimpanzee caught in the Congo in 1960 when he was about two by a pair of animal trainers named Frank and Janet Berger. As a chimp began to grow, mature and mixed with both of his own kind and human, some suggest he might not be a chimpanzee at all.
Or, maybe more correctly, he might not be just a chimpanzee. Maybe he was what has become known as a humanzee, a term created to describe a hybrid creature that's part ape and part human. He only ever walked on two legs and never used the knuckles of his forelimbs, and clearly evident several key differences in his facial features that set him apart from other chimps. That he preferred the company of human females to those of his own kind even made the burgers wonder if he might be a crossbreed. DNA tests undertaken in 1996 demonstrated why Oliver certainly walked in a decidedly unusual fashion for a chimpanzee and displayed uncharacteristic social behavior and looked different than others of his own species. He was definitely all chimp. Died when he was in his mid-50s in June of 2012. Well, now let's talk about the most controversial matter. All across Central Asia, as far west as parts of Europe, as far east as Mongolia, reports have been uh, coming in of hairy creatures known as almas or almasti. Seem to be far more akin to men than they do apes. They reputedly exhibit clear and undeniable characteristics of both. Opinion is divided as to what they might be. It's tempting to theorize their surviving pockets of Neanderthal, our closest relative, which supposedly died out in a latter part of the Pleistocene epoch, more familiar known as the Ice Age. Certainly some researchers, such as a late uh, American anthropologist and cryptozoologist, Professor Grover Krantz, concluded the Almasi might well be true human, nothing more than surviving remnants of Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, similar to and far more primitive than the original uh, aboriginal natives of the more obscure parts of South America and Southeast Asia. And there's another theory that at least a few presumed Elmasti may actually be of a different nature and lineage. They may be the rare successful examples of early Ivanov's crazed experiments, products of his mad science activities secretly banished to the wilderness of the Soviet Union where they lived out their miserable existence. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. From time to time, I'll delve more into the monster files, and we'll talk more about some of the strange things going on. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great weekend.